For the last few months, our congregation has been walking through the book of Galatians. We started right at the beginning and made our way looking at the entire book. Today we're going to finish it out, but I also recognize that there's possibility a number of guests, whether it be family members, friends, or whoever, are joining with us today and haven't been privy to that discussion all up, uh, that we've had over the last few months. And so I want to, as best I can, catch everybody up. And so we're going to start at the beginning of the book of Galatians. And I know some of you are like, wait, wait, wait. Like, we got things to do the rest of the day, and you're going to start at the beginning so we can finish it out. Don't worry, I'm going to do this, but I actually think this works really well. I'm excited uh, when I started laying out the sermon series in Galatians that we would finish it on Easter, and I think you'll see why I'm excited, but it also works really well to look at both ends of this letter that Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, uh, because I think it captures Holy Week so well and, and what we're celebrating. So, uh, that's where we're going to be. We're going to start at the very first chapter of Galatians. But before we get into the scripture, if you would, would you join me in a time of prayer for our hearts and our minds to be illuminated? Let's pray. Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, Above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, starting at the first verse. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul starts his letters to the churches in Galatians and he's, when he does so, he's drawing on a couple of of central Jewish narratives. So the first narrative that Paul is drawing from is the idea that you and I as human beings need forgiveness, right? So God set forth before humanity a standard of how we are to live, and this standard was given to humanity through the Jews in the form of the law. And the law not only tells us what we should do and what we should not do, but it, but it really paints a picture of what it means to be human. And as humans, how we are to relate to God, how we are to relate to one another, and how we are to relate to the world around us. Now, as human beings, in the very beginning, we have sinned and we've fallen short of the standard. And so because we've fallen short of the standard that God has laid out for us and how we are to live, we say that we are in sin. And when we say we're in sin, we're talking about it in two different ways. Number one is the idea that you and I do things that we should not do, and we don't do things that we should do, right? The other idea is that we, we and the world are in sin, which means that everything in this world has been corrupted and tainted and, and distorted because of sin, and we cannot escape that distortion that sin has brought, and so what that looks like is this. The creation is beautiful and it's majestic and it's grand. 
You go to the ocean and you hear the waves crashing against the shore. You go to the mountains and you see their splendor and it takes our breath away. But everything has been affected by sin. Everything is in sin. And so this same beautiful, grand, wonderful creation that takes our breath away because of its splendor also takes our breath away because of the destruction that it can bring through wave and wind and storm. This creation that is good and beautiful, that provides us with sustenance and place and, 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 and the things we need to survive also is filled with infestation and disease. Relationships that we have, relationships that bring us a sense of belonging and bring us love are also full of risk and pain and betrayal. Even our good desires are in sin, right? The good desires that we have for love and connection and purpose and fulfillment are perverted to become self-serving and self-gratifying and self-focused. There's not one thing or one person or one place in this world that has not been affected by sin. And it isn't to say that all of these things are evil or, or bad, but it's simply to say that even the good things of this world have been tainted by and affected by and are in sin. And so for this reason, sin must be dealt with. And this is what the, in the Jewish mindset, this is what the Passover was all about. The Passover was the time in which the sins of the world and the sins of the people were dealt with. And it was dealt with in two ways. Number one, the sins of the people would be placed onto a scapegoat. And that scapegoat would be sent away from the people out into the desert. And the symbol was that the scapegoat is carrying the sins away from the people. The second way is a sacrificial lamb at the same time was taken and was slaughtered to atone for the sins. So Paul pulls on this theme of needing forgiveness when he says to the letters, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. And then he pulls in a second narrative from Jewish history. And he says, to rescue us from this present evil age. For much of the history of the Jewish people, they were in exile. Much of the New Testament was written from a people who were in exile, whether that be to the Assyrians, whether it be to the Babylonians, whether maybe they're living in their own homeland of the Romans, but they are not the ones who are in control, right? They are under occupation. And so this idea was that there is coming a time, the prophets foretold a time in which God would rescue his people by sending a Messiah and they would be delivered from their enemies and they would no longer be exiled, but the, the, the nation of Israel would be restored. Jerusalem would once again be the capital city in which the temple was, was present and in the temple heaven and earth would meet. And so when the Messiah came, when God sent the Messiah, the people would be rescued from this present evil age, this age of exile, and they would be brought into the age to come. And Paul takes these two ideas and he weaves them together when he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and to rescue us from this evil age. He takes and he weaves these two ideas together. And what it means when he says our Lord Jesus Christ did this is that both our sins were forgiven and we were rescued from this present evil age when Jesus died on the cross. Good Friday 
is the day in which we journey to Golgotha. It's the day in which we remember that on that hill, Jesus became our sacrificial lamb and our scapegoat as our sins and the sin that enslaves the cosmos were placed on his shoulders. And so in Christ, we find forgiveness of sins because Christ became our sin. Christ suffered the consequence of our sin in order to rescue us. And this truth that at the cross, Christ delivers us from sin, rescues us. This truth changes everything that we know about God and how we ought to relate to God. No longer can we see God as some pernicious deity in the sky with a vengeful streak that we have to try to convince to like us through our good deeds. Instead, in Christ we see the visible image of the invisible God. We see a God who is willing to give himself for us and for our salvation. What we don't see is this idea that sometimes exists within churches. It's the idea that God is angry and Jesus saves us from this angry God in the sky. Good Trinitarian theology, Trinitarian, the idea that God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in one Godhead, doesn't allow for that kind of theology, that kind of idea that God is angry and Jesus rescues us from the angry God, because what the Son is doing, the Father and the Spirit are also doing. John, in his gospel, says it like this in John chapter 5. Actually, Jesus says it in John chapter 5. The Son can only do, or the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. So when Jesus takes our place on the cross, he's doing what he sees the father doing. Suffering on our account. Redeeming us. Offering his righteousness for our sinfulness. This is the gospel and this is what we remember and what we Reflect on, and even with a certain somberness, celebrate during Good Friday. But Christianity isn't just about what God has done, but it is also about what God will do. And so for that, let's turn to the end of the book of Galatians. Turn with me to chapter 6. We'll start at verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. So now comes the part where you get your typical Easter sermon about circumcision. So let's go. <laughs> no, what Paul has, in fact, brought us to Easter. Because what he says is, is what matters is the new creation. What matters is new creation. 
The old way of relating to God, circumcision and uncircumcision, right? These are the ways in which we relate to God because circumcision was a, a way in which you marked yourself as a member of the covenant community, as a member of the people of God. And Paul says, no, 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 circumcision or uncircumcision, those things don't matter anyway because there's a new order in our midst. And this order has come about not, because, has come about not just because Christ has died, but it's come about also because Christ has risen. The crucifixion of Jesus would not carry the meaning it does without the resurrection. And we have to remember this. We have to, we have to make sure that we wrap up our understandings of what happens on Good Friday with also what happens on, on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sin. In other words, if it wasn't for the resurrection, then what happened on Good Friday wouldn't atone for our sins. The blood that was shed would not cover over our sins. We'd still be in our sins if it wasn't for the resurrection. If it wasn't for Easter Sunday, all that would happen on Good Friday is another failed Jewish Messiah would die at the hands of the occupying country. All that would have happened on Good Friday is that another person was put to death by Rome in order to maintain peace and civil order. But that's not that's all that's happened because we know that the tomb is empty. Christ has risen and the world has turned a corner towards the hope of God moving us from this present evil age to the age to come. The death of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus restored the power or destroyed, I mean, destroyed the power of the old world. Sin and evil and injustice, they no longer have a hold here. Yeah, 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 they're still present here, but they no longer have a hold. And if you listen carefully, you can hear their death rattle as they gasp for their final breaths. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and with resurrection comes new creation. And it's all that matters. New creation resurrection. It's happening. It's coming here. Not there, not far away, not to another dimension somewhere, but here in this place, in this world, in our lives. Resurrection has inaugurated the new creation among us. And so because this is what matters, let us be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about the resurrection. Resurrection is different than resuscitation. Resuscitation is a bringing back to what was. It's a return to something. Resurrection is bringing new life to that which was dead and was let to lay die. Dead. Die. I have no English. <laughs> but resurrection happens when you place something in a tomb for three days and let it lay there. Let the stench begin to form. Resuscitation is momentary, and it, it, it maybe, maybe there's a past, maybe the heartbeat has stopped, maybe the breathing has stopped, but what comes back then is what was. When resurrection happens, though, something new has come. New life, new order, new relationships, new creation. This is what mattered. The old is gone, and the new has come. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. I told you, I'm going to hit this all day long, because this is what matters. Christ is risen. Yeah, there you go. So let's be clear about what we are saying. When we say that the old is gone and the new has come, we're not saying 
that all the things that have gone before, creation, experiences, lessons, love, goodness, beauty, we're not saying that these things no longer mattered, that at some point in the future they're going to be obliterated, and that they're going to be completely replaced with something that is, that is outside of our imagination and something that, that we cannot fathom. Instead, we're saying, like, this new creation, it is something new, but it's also, it's also something kind of familiar. The prophets talked about it like this. In Isaiah 61, he said, the prophet writes, They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places that have been devastated for generations. See, the Old Testament prophets talked about God restoring Israel and doing something new, but it was never, it was never in another place, Right? It was always like restoration in a particular place. It was, about, it was about the thing that had been destroyed being built upon something new right on top of it. It wasn't about a new earth, right? It wasn't about like this earth totally passes away and then we get a new earth. It wasn't about some magical place in the sky. It wasn't about a new plot of land across an ocean somewhere. It was like, no, God was going to do something new, but he was going to do something new right on top of the old. The temple would be rebuilt on the ruins of the old. Right? This week, Notre Dame burned. And when it's rebuilt, it's rebuilt on the old. Heaven and earth will come down and will meet with earth. Right? This is what John saw in his revelation. At the very end, in chapter 21, he saw a new heaven and a new earth. They're coming down, but they're meeting the old. And the Easter story, here's what's fascinating. The Easter story continues with this idea. This idea that the restoration won't be like something completely new, but it'll sit on top of the ruins of what has come before. You see, Jesus is placed in the tomb, right? And when the women go to the tomb to, to care for the body, it's not there. And later, the, the disciples, when they, Jesus appears to the disciples, I mean, it's, it's his body, right? They can see him. They can touch him. And yet, it's different because he came through the walls. But yet, it's the old because you can touch my scars. Right? The new has come, but it's the new, like, right on top of the old. Or when Jesus appears to his disciples, he appears to them in the upper room. Perhaps even the same upper room where Jesus shared a last meal with his disciples. It's like this appearance happens in the place of the old. Where Jesus, after his resurrections, before he ascends up into heaven, he commissions his disciples with a great commission to go and to make disciples of all nations. And he does so on a hill in Galilee. The land, the place where the disciples are from, the land, the place where Jesus has ministered for so long and they've heard him teach before and now, now he's teaching them something new but he's doing it in the place of the old. And Jesus appears to his disciples another time and he appears to them on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are out fishing. You can't help but wonder, like, is it maybe the same shore where Jesus first came into contact with the disciples and said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And now he's calling them to, again. But it's something new. It's a new calling, and it's a new mission. But it happens in the place of the old. And on that same shore, after they had eaten the fish, Peter, Jesus turns to Peter, the one who denied Jesus three times. Jesus turns to Peter and says three more times, Peter, do you love me? 
And he restores vocation and calling to Peter's life. Right on top of the old, right on top of his mistakes. In each of these instances, God is doing something new. He's doing something new through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that new thing is built on top of the old thing. And this is our hope for Easter. Our hope is not that God destroys our lives, obliterates our memories, and then removes the things that we love the most from us. Rather, our hope is that God burns away the things that both pollute the good, that distort the beauty that exists in our life. Our hope is that God meets us in the rubble of our lives to do something new right there in the midst of our devastation. You see, see, where we see ruins, God sees potential. Where we see waste, God sees fertile soil. And where we see dry bones, God sees the structures on which a life can be placed. Our hope is that what is dead will be resurrected. That what has been destroyed will be restored. The Anglican priest and theologian Rowan Williams says it like this, God will take us back to the place where our cities and temples, our ideals and aspirations, faith and love were destroyed and defeated. God takes us back there in order to build something new. Right there in the midst of our failures, God is going to do something new. And so maybe... Maybe there's a relationship in your life that lines in ruin. Maybe it's, 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 a, it's, a sh- it's a shell of what it once was. And it's a, it's a thing that brings you pain and it's a thing that brings you grief. And there's a, there's a fear that it's something you're just going to have to walk away from and let lie in ruin. But right there, in the ruins of that relationship, God can do something new. God can rebuild what was once broken down. Maybe you've been grieved by pain that you've caused. Okay, pain you've caused either intentionally or unintentionally. And that pain keeps you up at night, and that pain keeps you from doing things because you think you're somehow disqualified. But from the devastation of your grief, God will bring something new. Maybe your hopes and your dreams have been stepped on and beaten and bruised because of the broken world that we lived in. Maybe, maybe you've been stepped on and broken down and, and, and beaten up so badly because of this world that the idea of dreaming seems impossible. And it's something that fills you with fear. It's the fear that like, you won't give voice to your hopes and your dreams. Or, or maybe, maybe, you, maybe it's so bad that to give hopes and dreams form in your consciousness feels risky. And it's right there. In the broken ability to dream and to hope that God speaks resurrection. Maybe you're overwhelmed with shame because of what you failed to do or because of something that happened. Take heart. 
because your shame is bound up with the cross of Jesus and you no longer need to be ashamed for Jesus is not ashamed of you. You see, it's in those broken places of our lives that Jesus is building something new. It's in the rubble of our relationships that new life springs forth. It's in our wounds, physical and emotional, that healing comes, which means, which means you and I do not have to fear. We don't have to fear because resurrection means that those places in our lives that where we fear things happening, those places where we fear that what we've built, our families, our careers, all of those things, like we fear that that might fall apart or we fear that it's going to be ruined by the brokenness of this world. We fear that we're going to see the love that we experience on a daily basis destroyed. We fear death itself. But we don't have to fear those things because all that matters is new creation. We don't have to despair even when we're standing in the midst of the rubble of our lives. Even when that rubble is undeniably a result of our own sin, our own doing. Because it's in the midst of the rubble that resurrection comes. It's right there when we're standing in the midst of the house that has fallen down around us with dust still covering our faces. Right there, resurrection is coming. And the new thing that God is doing will be built on top of the old. This is the grace of the gospel of Jesus. That when Christ forgives our sins and saves us from this present evil age, it doesn't mean that the broken shards of what was good get swept away. It doesn't mean that Jesus is some janitor that comes up cleaning our messes after us. No, no, no. Jesus is the cornerstone that is placed into the midst of the destruction that surrounds us, and on top of that cornerstone, new creation will be built. New life will come. New relationships will be established. And this is what counts. This is what matters. New creation. The resurrection of possibility. The resurrection of hope. The resurrection of what's good. The resurrection of love. The resurrection of trust. The resurrection of bodies. The resurrection of lives. This is what matters. This is all that matters. New creation. Peace and mercy to those who accept this good news. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that Jesus Christ is the one who has given himself for the forgiveness of our sins and that we have been rescued from this present evil age. And I pray, I pray that we would see resurrection at work all around us. That this new order of things would be something that we have eyes to see. I pray for those of us who are in the midst of the rubble, for those of us who are experiencing the death and the destruction that happened because of the sin in this world I pray that we would have the courage to continue in faith that we might see resurrection all around us. Might we be a people marked by holding on to one thing, one truth. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. May this give us confidence. May this give us hope. May this bring us comfort 
in the midst of what's broken. Even so, we pray, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.